Welcome to Solidarity Cast. I'm your host, El Mick. This is a podcast aimed at gathering tools from history to arm us in resisting the Psych 101 case study currently inhabiting the White House. Each episode, I rely on one book that tells a story from history that I think may be helpful for surviving Agent Orange, whether as roadmap or cautionary tale. This week, I read The Iranian Revolution, The Islamic Revolution That Shaped the Middle East by Charles River Editors. This book is super small. I read it in one sitting, in fact, and it covers the Iranian Revolution of 1979. The introduction to this book stresses how unique this revolution was in comparison to others we might be familiar with. I'm going to explore whether that's actually true. Spoiler alert, I don't think it's too unique that we cannot find some guidance here. Some historical context is appropriate here. Iran was conquered by Muslim Arabs in the 7th century. Sunni Islam was practiced by the majority of people there, but the Safavid dynasty practiced Shia Islam, so Shiaism was declared the state religion in the 1500s. Iran was a monarchy for hundreds of years, but clerics called ulama played a very strong role. Now, this was true throughout Islamic countries, yes, but in Iran, the long-reigning Qajar dynasty really expanded the role of the ulama. The Qajar dynasty ruled from 1794 to 1925, and by the time that the reign ended, Ulama had significant political powers in addition to their role as legal and religious scholars. In fact, they actually played a rather strong role in protecting the country against colonialism in the 1800s. In 1921, Rija Khan organized a coup and ousted the last Qajar Shah. Riza Khan changed the name of the country from Persia to Iran at this time, in case you ever wondered how that happened. And he also changed his own name by adding the surname Pavlavi. Reza Shah really pushed for secularization in Iran. He wanted to emulate Turkey and, quote, dreamed of Iran as its own modern republic, free from religious and ethnic divides, and united by common patriotism for a secular regime, end quote. And if you're looking for a real starting point, what caused this revolution to eventually occur, this might be where to start. Reza Shah sought to modernize the country. This included eschewing the traditional judiciary system where ulamas settled disputes and determined what the law was, and instead he adopted a system modeled on that of France's judiciary. He also mandated compulsory education across the country for primary school, and even sent hundreds of Iranians to Europe for education and training, including his own son. And perhaps worst of all, he allowed a British company, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, known as AIOC, to control the oil industry in the nation. So it probably doesn't come as much of a surprise that Reza Shah was met with resistance from several different interests entrenched politicians concerned about their role in a new changing system, merchants whose economic interests might be greatly affected by rapid modernization, and of course, the ulama, who saw their authority in matters of state governance shrink more and more. But the resistance isn't the proximate cause of Reza Shah's undoing. He was actually deposed by British forces for being sympathetic to Nazi Germany in World War II. He abdicated, gave control to his son Mohammed Reza Shah, and went to exile in South Africa, where he soon died. 
Concerned about what he witnessed happening to his father, Mohammad Reza Shah willingly helped the Allied forces. The country was a conduit for supplies being sent to the Soviet Union from the West. Naturally, Mohammad Reza Shah's people saw him as a puppet of the West. At this point, they had a democratically elected parliament called the Majlis. Unsurprisingly, an aggressive nationalist was appointed by the parliament as prime minister in 1950. His name was Mohammad Mosaddegh. Mosaddegh immediately sought to nationalize the Iranian oil industry. The Majlis unanimously voted to nationalize the AIOC. This is what led to the global boycott of Iranian crude. A global boycott of the country's number one export did wonders for its economy. There is an increase in unrest among the people, and Mosaddegh took advantage of this. He intimidated Mohammad Reza Shah into fleeing the country in exile in 1953. It's interesting that even though it was clearly Mosaddegh's and the Majlis doing that caused such an economic disaster in the country, it was Mohammad Reza Shah that ultimately bore the brunt of the, the people's ire over it. But Mohammad Reza Shah did have the support of the West and the CIA took care of Mosaddegh for him. He returned to Iran and resumed his role as absolute monarch, but this only cemented his reputation as a puppet of the West. Mohammad Reza Shah was shrewd enough to favor the military and engaged in mass arms transfers with his new BFFs, the United States, and ended up with a highly trained and well-equipped military. When back in his country and in power, he stripped the Majlis of all of their powers, and foreign oil companies continued working in Iran. This did little to endear him to his people. He also formed a secret police, the Savak, who hunted down dissidents. Most opposition from across the spectrum was silenced through assassination, unlawful detentions, and exile. All that being said, Mohammad Reza Shah was also surprisingly progressive. In 1963, he launched his White Revolution, a five-point program with the goal that the five minimum human needs would be met for all citizens of Iran. Health, food, clothing housing, and education. Doesn't that sound nice? But he recognized that the country needed to completely change its structure and order that, quote, this required a deep and fundamental revolution, which would put an end to injustice, tyranny, exploitation, and reactionary forces which impeded progress, end quote. Mohammad Reza Shah unfortunately didn't learn all of the lessons of his father's mistakes and failed to include the ulama in his white revolution. He expected that they would sabotage the program, which was not an unreasonable expectation. Um, but then he also went so far as to create a religion course, which would square the laws of Islam with the spirit of the white revolution, essentially rendering the ulama obsolete. With the aim of modernizing Iran, the Shah disbanded parliament, suspended all future elections, and initiated sweeping reforms in land ownership, education, health care, and civil rights. See, he knew that his country, its structure, its culture, wouldn't allow for him to achieve the goals of his white revolution, and thus needed to take decisive, authoritarian, illiberal actions. So, once again, we're confronted with 
the idea, someone having the idea, that maintaining freedom requires a bit of oppression. I'll circle back around to this later. So now that you have the historical backdrop, let's dig in. As I said at the beginning, the Iranian Revolution is characterized as shocking in this book. See, you had a legitimate monarch in a very wealthy state with a strong, powerful military and international support undone by popular protest. It's a real David and Goliath kind of thing, and it wasn't precipitated by the traditional causes of revolutions, like financial crisis or disgruntled military or or major defeat in war. So why did it happen? Very simple response is that the Shah didn't have the support of his people. You see, not only was he viewed as a puppet ruler, but he was also quite repressive against domestic political interests. He banned political parties, which sent them underground. And what ended up actually happening was divergent opposition groups with incompatible ideologies ended up banding together for the same purpose, the one goal, to overthrow the Shah. The Shah did things like forming the Resurgence Party and making the membership to it compulsory, including the payment of dues. People loved that. And the party was actually described as aggressively un-Islamic. And, quote, its intrusion into the political, economic, and religious concerns of the Iranian people's lives angered even those who were previously uninvolved in politics, end quote. So he outraged people enough that those who had never previously been political became really involved and interested in politics. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, this could be largely anecdotal, but I personally have never seen people as engaged with our democracy as I have since January 20th. Now, of course, I don't want to oversimplify things too much. There were, of course, economic issues. The Shah was overambitious in his plans for modernization. The rapid industrialization drained the country's treasury because he didn't really set up the infrastructure to handle this. They didn't have enough skilled workers or facilities to actually reap the benefits of modernization. So the country depended on imports. This made investors reluctant to invest in domestic projects, which just made the situation worse and worse. At the same time, the Shah's land reform projects were just terrible. Farmers were forced to relocate to poverty-ridden cities, and educated urban Iranians were sent to the country. I mean, this is just clearly dumb. And a major problem for many Iranians was the growing class inequality they saw. They saw the Shah's government as corrupt, and the Shah and his cronies gained more and more riches while Iranians were losing out. And then there were some just stupid things that the Shah did that did not help matters at all. For example, he forced the country to change the calendar. Now, I understand why he did this. Um, they were previously, they used the Islamic calendar, and this was one of the steps in a movement away from a religious government to a secular regime. So I understand that. But at the same time, God, what a pain in the ass that must have been for everyday people. Just on top of everything else, just suddenly have your calendar changed. That just, what a pain. It was just like wrecking havoc on people's day-to-day -day lives with such tiny little payout. 
And of course, his party also denounced the Ulamas. While many of the goals of the White Revolution were really good from a human rights and progressive perspective, the Shah just implemented things in a really bad way. He made no effort to work with the religious sector. Now granted, at a certain point, it would be counterproductive to compromise on some of the progressive goals to appease Orthodox clerics. But it's not like Iran was comprised solely of Orthodox Muslims at the time. There were different sects of Islam, different levels of religiosity, there were Jews and Christians as well. And just like there are Catholics who identify as Catholic but only attend Mass on Christmas and Easter, there are Muslims who identify as Muslim but will still have a beer with you unless it's Ramadan. But the Shah made no attempt to work with his people. There was room for that, but instead he just bulldozed ahead with what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. He failed to garner any support from any religious leaders, even moderate ones, which left many of the accusations from his main critic and the frontman of the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, unanswered. Khomeini argued that the Shah, quote, not only violated individual rights, constitutional liberties, and international laws, but he also intended to destroy Islam, ruin agriculture, waste resources on useless weapons, and plunder the country on behalf of American imperialism, end quote. Now, based on what we've discussed so far, his account doesn't really sound that far off, especially if it's not rebutted. Ayatollah Khomeini began his political activity well into his religious career. He organized ulama against a proposed law that would no longer require elected officials to be sworn in on the Quran. This was part of the Shah's westernization program. He clearly didn't see very many American swearing-in ceremonies. Khomeini was arrested a couple of times for giving speeches critical of the Shah. His first arrest sparked so much protest that when he was arrested the second time, he was immediately taken to the airport and exiled to Turkey. Turkey was a secular country at the time, and he was not permitted to even wear his religious garb there, so he quickly left and went to Iraq. He spent 13 years in exile in Najaf. He continued to teach and preach there. He was teaching and preaching about the idea of a truly Islamic state, what that would look like. He came up with a government of the Islamic jurist, a state based on Islamic principles and led by a member of the clergy with supreme knowledge of Islamic law. Khomeini believed Islamic law was applicable to every aspect of life. The leadership would need to have supreme knowledge of the laws in order to enforce the law, but would also have to be just and fair, lest they manipulate the law, which would lead to tyranny. Khomeini's idea for the government of the Islamic jurist was, of course, wholly embraced by the ulama in Iran and they began to preach toppling the Shah as an actual religious duty. The Shah realized Khomeini was still a threat to him so close in Iraq, and so ministers from the two countries met in New York to agree on terms. Iraq had to give Khomeini an ultimatum. He could stop political activity and stay in Iraq, or he would have to leave the country. He decided to leave. He went to France. He ended up in an area with a substantial Shia community. He also took advantage of the free press allowed in a liberal country like France to great effect. So ironically, he used the tools of a liberal society to help achieve a repressive one. Sort of like the converse of what I mentioned earlier, that sometimes people think freedom requires oppression. And interestingly, the slogan of the revolution, Estiklal, Azadi, Jamhuriyet, Islami, translates to independence, freedom, and Islamic republic. 
So now's the time where I take a brief tangent um, to discuss the concept of freedom. Like, what the hell? It baffles me how a movement to establish a theocracy based on a pretty orthodox sect of a religion could tout itself as a movement for freedom and independence, or that they would want to identify as such. And then I thought about it, and really it seems like every movement shrouds itself in the garb of a freedom fighter. Soviet life sounds as if it was anything but free, but it lauded itself as freedom from the capitalist oppressors. So we've seen authoritarian rule as a way to protect freedom in Roman dictators. We saw Lincoln suspending civil liberties to protect the Union. Nazis used the phrase Arbeit macht frei, which translates to work makes you free, on the gates of concentration camps. And in Iran, we see the Shah ban political parties to enable him to set up a modern, progressive, liberal country. Then we see Khomeini use a free press to help him in his movement for a rigid theocracy. And the movement itself believes it is one seeking freedom and independence. Does freedom even have any meaning? If it can apply in all of these situations, if it can be used to describe the motivations for such drastically different goals, what does it actually mean then? And why is it always the rallying cry? If you're looking for a leader who will just sweep in, act unilaterally, be decisive, then why are you saying you value freedom and liberty? Because clearly you don't. You value strength and decisiveness. Like, what is it about the idea of freedom that makes people want to believe that that's actually what they want when the goals they are trying to achieve are actually contrary to it? I don't have answers. Um, philosophical tangent over. In the late 70s, the Shah started to ease up on oppression. He was trying to be a man of the times. This enabled opposition groups to actually exist out in the open. The protest started in leftist organizations, not the religious ones. The Iranian Writers Association was particularly active and credited with being the first spark of the revolution. But the fire really started after the death of Khomeini's son Mustafa in 1977. Mustafa died of a heart attack in Iraq, but rumors spread that the Shah ordered Mustafa's assassination. Not that I don't think this is possible. I think it's possible, and I'm sure governments and dark governments have done this kind of thing before. I'm looking at you, Russia. But I wonder what motivation could have the Shah had if he had, had actually done this. Like, why? Why would he do that? What, what, what is achieved? All it does is, is make his opponent look more sympathetic. It doesn't make sense from a political standpoint to do such a thing unless the man was just being petty. That being said, it's not exactly like the Shah has proven himself to be a shrewd political strategist. Anyway, Khomeini used his son's funeral as a pulpit, shouting anti-Shah slogans and calling his son a martyr. Demonstrations and protests occurred with more consistency and intensity. The Shah attempted to control the situation and reverted back to the tools of oppression. And then there was an article published on January 7th, 1978, accusing Khomeini of being a British agent and a homosexual. Many believed this was a naked attempt by the Shah's government to slander Khomeini. The following day, thousands marched in Qom to protest, and shops were closed. Security forces reacted to the demonstrations with violence. Seventy protesters were killed, over 400 injured. This just upset people further. 
In February, mourning processions were organized, which also resulted in deaths, creating more martyrs and resulting in what has been called the 40-day mourning and protest cycle. This continued until June, when the opposition, not the government, the opposition called for a stop because of the regime's growing violence. You see, the government used increasing violence to respond to the people's anger over government's use of violence. Seems logical. The Shah's government made mistake after mistake, largely because the Shah himself was entirely baffled by the situation he found himself in. And he didn't know what to do. He vacillated between responding with force and responding with concessions. This did nothing to improve his standing with his people who saw their leader as indecisive, in addition to all the other awful things they thought about him. On September 7th, 1978, the Shah appointed General Golam Ali Ovesi as military governor of Tehran. General Ovesi declared martial law at midnight in Tehran and 11 other cities, but protests continued. The next morning, thousands were gathered in Jala Square in Tehran and security forces were sent in. The official reported death toll was 86, but bodies in the Tehran morgue were assigned numbers which reached over 3,000. This incident came to be known as Black Friday. If there was anyone still on the fence about the Shah, Black Friday really convinced people that the Shah should not maintain the right to rule. Khomeini was back in France at this point, and the freedom of the country enabled him to better coordinate an opposition movement. He began to gather support from non-Islamic groups. In October, a general strike was declared across Iran, devastating the country. This was independent of Khomeini and the opposition. People were pissed about their working conditions and were looking for concessions. The strike was massive and just led to further instability, further ire directed at the Shah's regime. The opposition took advantage of this and tethered themselves to the striking workers. See, the Shah could not respond to the workforce's refusal to work with violence. After all, he needed the workers to be alive and well to go to work to support the country's economy. In November, Khomeini endorsed the strike and asked the Iranian people to continue to strike until the Shah abdicated. In the Islamic Month of Remembrance, Muharram, protests increased considerably. It's estimated between 6 and 9 million Iranians participated in protests at this time. And these protests were generally non-violent and even considered dignified, which served as a wake-up call to the Shah. He began talking with the moderate opposition. The Shah asked Shapur Bakhtiar to form a government, and he agreed to do so as long as the Shah left the country. On January 16, 1979, the Shah did just that. Bakhtiar immediately got to work. He ended martial law, lifted press restrictions, freed political prisoners, withdrew from the Central Treaty Organization. This was an alliance with Iraq, Pakistan, Turkey, and the UK. Canceled arms deals with the US and announced the country would no longer sell oil to Israel and South Africa. But it wasn't enough, because Bakhtar was seen as the last prime minister appointed by the Shah. Khomeini declared that government illegal and announced he would be returning to Iran. Bakhtiar said that was fine, but then actually went and shut down the airport, so Khomeini practically could not actually get back. People protested this, and some died, further delegitimizing Bakhtiar. Khomeini came home on February 1st, 1979, appointed Mehdi Barzagan as prime minister of a provisional government. Technically, Bakhtiar was still in power, but he did not have the support of the people. He didn't even have the support of his military. On February 11, 1979, military commanders announced that the military would act neutral in the dispute between Khomeini and Bakhtiar's rival governments. Bakhtiar saw the writing on the wall and went into hiding. So the revolution was a success. Khomeini chose Mehdi Bazargan to head the government. 
But at this point, there were hundreds of revolutionary committees operating throughout the country, independently, and answering to no authority. People didn't know who was in charge of what. Policing, guarding government buildings, conducting tribunals, these were all done by independent committees. It is suggested that this chaotic beginning to the Islamic Republic would continue to characterize around to this day. The post-revolutionary government consisted of the Revolutionary Council, which shared power with the Prime Minister. The Council held legislative authority and passed measures according to Islamic principles. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was established in May 1979. They were tasked with stamping out rival movements, and the Revolutionary Courts tried, sentenced, and executed officials in the previous government. On April 1st, 1979, Iranians voted on what kind of political system to establish. Technically, at least. 98% of Iranians voted for the creation of an Islamic Republic, because that was the only option on the ballot. An assembly of experts amassed to work on the Constitution, which gave considerable power to the ulama. The Guardian Council was also established, a group of 12 jurists who were experts in Islamic law who would interpret the Constitution. The Constitution itself was also approved by a margin of 98% of voters. While this was going on in Iran, Mohammad Reza Shah entered the U.S. to receive cancer treatment. The people back home, however, were convinced that he was attempting to stage another coup with the help of the West. Protests erupted, culminating in the hostage crisis at the U.S. Embassy. Khomeini named himself Supreme Leader using the Doctrine of Mass. The Shiites believed that the Prophet Muhammad's 12th Imam would re-emerge at the end of time and claim the position of leader. Khomeini said he was this 12th Imam. While he set up a government that appeared purely Islamic, and maybe this was actually his intent at the start, over time it became clear that he was devoted to consolidating his power as supreme leader. The president was subordinate to the supreme leader. The guardian council, which was accountable to the supreme leader, monitored the majlis closely and had the ability to veto proposed majlis laws and also approve political candidates. Now it was no secret that Khomeini's goal was to set up an Islamic state. In fact, he believed that Islam was the solution to all of life's problems. He also believed that Iran had a duty to spread Islamic law as an alternative to political doctrine. But the revolution was comprised of many non-Islamists. It was really an anti-Shah coalition more than anything else. Khomeini may have toned down his religious rhetoric when trying to woo other revolutionary factions, so many were unprepared for what Khomeini had in store for the country. Or they just chose to ignore what he had been saying. Khomeini, like the Shahs before him, handled opposition with repression. But why did the people stand for this? They just went through that with the Shah. Why would they let another leader come in and do essentially the same? My guess is that the complicated reasons underlying the unrest was neatly packaged as the Shah is a puppet of the West. That was the Cliff Notes version of what people thought was wrong. And no one could call Khomeini a puppet of the West. I think that's why they tolerated it. I think in general people really suck at figuring out their motivations and the causes of their own feelings. So this neat little package that was handed to them was gladly accepted. We definitely do that here with our political slogans and news coverage. Chanting a phrase instead of talking about the complicated issues makes it pretty easy to forget the complicated reasons you've been upset all this time. Maybe that's what's going on when people who shouted lock her up. Don't criticize the tweeter-in-chief for his unsecured Android use. Maybe I'm being too charitable. The success of the Iranian Revolution had a strong effect on the region. It, quote, confirmed the failure of the secular state model and proved the power of Islam. Their religion was capable of overthrowing an entire system that was backed by the West 
achieving what secular ideologies like Marxism and Leninism had mostly failed to do, end quote. It's probably fair to say that we're still feeling the reverberations of this today. So that's the story of the Iranian Revolution. As I mentioned a few times now, the editors did make a big deal of the Iranian Revolution being wholly unlike most revolutions we are used to. Quote, the historical oddity, if not uniqueness, of the Iranian Revolution can be seen in its four salient features. Its unforeseen rapid rise, its wide base of urban support, its vague ideological character, and, above all, its ultimate singular objective, to oust the Shah, end quote. I mean, couldn't we characterize the current resistance movement in much the same way? The most important lesson to take from the Iranian Revolution, I think, is that popular protest is itself actually enough if there is enough of it. And the Iranian Revolution was not about people suffering and lashing out. They weren't starving or watching their sons come home in body bags. They were just pissed that their leader seemed so wildly out of touch and completely disregarded the needs of the majority of the people or their traditions and values. I wouldn't want to see us go down the same road because it's paved with so much blood. I would prefer we find a way out of this disaster by relying on the foundation of our system of government. But two years is a long time for that jackass to fire people until he's surrounded only by yes-men who will, who will do whatever he says. I'm remaining hopeful, but staying vigilant. If you like what I'm doing, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, etc. If you have suggestions, comments, criticisms, hit me up on Twitter at SolidarityCast or email SolidarityCast at Gmail. If you don't like what I'm doing, go fuck yourself. No, just kidding. Start your own podcast. Let me know how it goes. I've decided that I'm no longer going to announce the topic of the next episode. I've realized I need to have actually started reading a book before I can commit to being able to get an episode out of it. So you'll just have to stay tuned to find out what's next.